this summer we've been studying the Ten Commandments, and we've been kind of doing a summer series on each of the commandments in turn, and we're looking together at the Ten Commandments for a lot of reasons. Uh, you could name a, a lot of reasons. But let me just give you one reason uh, that comes to mind, and that is that the Ten Commandments have historically been essential Christian reading. Uh, despite a lot of misunderstandings about how the commandments work and uh, what they're for, for centuries, Christians have turned to this part of the Bible, to these ten commands, to get short, plain, and simple life directions. So directions that kind of help us to navigate what it means to be human. And the questions that we have as human beings, and questions that sort of go something like this, what do I actually do with all of this Christian information in the Bible? Or what is love? Uh, how do I practice love? What does that look like? Or maybe even just simply, like, how do I pray? People have turned to the Ten Commandments. Or how do I live? And that's sort of why we're looking at the Ten Commandments. And this morning, we're looking at the Eighth Commandment. The Eighth Commandment, you, you shall not steal. And like we have the entire series, we're going to look at this commandment in its context of the entire Bible. Uh, I won't go through all of the Bible, don't worry, but I am going to look at two parts of the New Testament. I'm going to look at Jesus and what he says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, and then also one of Jesus' earlier followers, the Apostle Paul, and what he says in the letter to the Ephesians. And so let's turn there, if you have a Bible or a phone, also behind me on the screen, this, these passages will be there, um, or in your bulletin. So we're going to look at Exodus chapter 20. Uh, first, the Eighth Commandment. Um, and I told myself when I did this in front of everyone last service, I wouldn't do this again. But here I am flipping in front of you trying to find the passage. So give me a second. Okay. Uh, Exodus chapter 20. We're going to look at verse 15. Let me get there. What feels like a moment. Okay. You shall not steal. They did all that work for that. So then we're going to go to Matthew 16. Could have just said that. All right. Um, Matthew 6, we're going to look at that, verses 19 through 23. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad or unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. And then we're going to end with a passage of Ephesians 4 and a verse, verse 28. Will this be worth flipping in front of people for? Yes, I think so. Okay, so verse 28, let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Friends, these are the words of God, and they are more precious than gold, even much fine gold, and they're sweeter than honey, even honey straight from the honeycomb. Would you pray for our time in these words this morning with me? Father, thanks for giving us your words, your Bible, uh, to meditate on, to think about, uh, to hold our lives up to its light. Uh, Lord, we think about the needs that we're bringing um, in this room, and I don't know all of them by any stretch, 
but I do know that some of us are really suffering and hurting. I think about the Ingalls, and I want to pray for them and pray for Sophia. Would you heal her? Uh, would you be with her parents, Aaron and Sarah, and as they uh, get um, released from the hospital, but as they get sort of a, a sense of what this is going to mean? Um, Lord, I pray that you would be with um, all of our hearts as we wrestle with um, what you'd have us to learn. But most of all, Jesus, would you just show up? Um, would you be more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our heart? Lord, would you um, teach us what we need to learn? And would you move our hearts by your love? Would you make us lovely by your love? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So looking at this topic uh, this week has stirred up kind of a, a recent part of my story, and I'm just going to kind of tell it. Uh, in about June of 2018, I got diagnosed with eye cancer, ocular melanoma, and pretty rare, like six or seven in a million. And it was a scary time in my life, and I thought, man, I, uh, I'm maybe going to lose my eyesight, my life. And, um, and so it kind of began about four years or more of losses and struggling uh, in my faith about God and his generosity. So with the cancer, I suddenly lost my health and was worried about my life and my eyesight, and, but thankfully had gotten a treatment of a week-long radiation directly, uh, radiating to my eye, and had cataract surgery to correct some of what the radiation did. You don't turn into a superhero, it turns out, with radiation. Um, just fact there. Um, and then about a year and a half after uh, I first got diagnosed with cancer, there was another different disease that shut down the entire world. I know we don't like to talk about this disease, uh, and I'm just going to do it anyway. It's, it's called COVID-19. Uh, COVID-19 happened, as is theoretically still happening, and there was a knockdown, drag-out fight. It's sort of like this. Like, imagine that you had a knockdown, drag-out fight, and your family screamed unspeakable things at each other through the fine china in the general direction of each other, sometimes hitting the target. But every holiday since... We pretend like that fight, those three years, never actually happened. <laughs> but those, those things did happen. We said all sorts of nasty things to each other, and we lost people we loved. And I lost relationships with people that I treasured during those three years. And the church, uh, from college, uh, even family members um, got estranged. And finally, like several of you, I moved uh, to Charlotte this past year and a record housing market with a very low supply and high demand and an inflation rate that was gangbusters, along with a bumping, slowly bumping up interest rate to offset the inflation rate, combined forces to make buying a house really difficult. And for some of you, renting is super difficult, um, getting a lease in a place you want to live. And I'll just tell you what my heart's grumble has been. It's been uh, really God, I'm 43 years old, okay? Well into middle age. I graduated college with honors. I went to grad school for three years. I've worked hard full-time for 17 years of my life, and I'm struggling to buy a house. What's that about? And so in the process of that, I didn't just lose relationships with uh, COVID. I didn't just lose my sense of health and maybe even uh, future uh, thinking about my life. In the, in the housing market, I started to lose my social and economic identity. I could no longer call myself firmly middle class and white collar. 
And I share these things knowing that I'm at extremely great risk of self-pity here. <laughs> uh, but I also really am trying to confess something. And because I, I also want to be really careful because I know that many of you are suffering currently or have suffered with way bigger things that I've mentioned, even in that list in the last four years. But I'm, rent, I'm mentioning these things because I want to talk honestly. I want to confess something that regular suffering, even in smaller things, does to us. What it did to my heart, uh, and it feels like I'm just now seeing what that kind of suffering did. From 2018 into the last even few months, I have felt like I've been carrying my life in a wet brown paper bag. And it's felt like uh, my life has been in constant danger of the bottom falling out and all the contents of my life spilling down onto the floor at my feet. I didn't know when this would happen. I didn't know what day it would happen. Sometimes I woke up feeling like this is the day it's going to happen. It is happening. Uh, when the hope was going to tear the bottom out and uh, it was going to, things were going to fall into free fall. And I let this outlook do something to me at a heart level. Um, I've become harder. I became harder. I became more self-sufficient. I felt like it was up to me to shore up my health, my relationships, even my economic status. If I wanted security and significance in this world, I had to go out and get it and take it, and then I had to hold on to it with white knuckles. And spiritually, internally, I became something of an orphan. You've heard stories, of these adoption stories maybe, where um, maybe you've experienced them firsthand, some of the families here have, where you've adopted an orphan child from a poor country, or maybe a poor economic situation in America, and you brought that him or her to live in a wealthy, uh, loving home, or you've seen this, and the small child is legally adopted, factually safe, and guaranteed access to a, a daily stream of toys and food, but these truths have not actually registered at a heart level. And so he or she begins to take extra toys and extra food and to hide them in a stash under the bed or in a box in the closet. And there's the thought process for this child that goes, I'm not okay. This whole thing could fall apart any second. In the midst of abundance, of generosity that we cannot even begin to measure, that orphan sees I see and often do still see a darker reality at work. And we can call this viewpoint what we're seeing scarcity. Scarcity. I see a scarcity in my health and my relationships and my finances and my housing even. I see scarcity waiting around every future corner behind every probable outcome. And in Matthew chapter 6, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reminds us that the eighth commandment, you shall not steal, is like all the other ten of the Ten Commandments. It's ultimately about our hearts. Stealing is not just a legal issue of property ownership and proof of property ownership and who has what. Stealing begins in the heart. It begins with the question that we're always answering in our hearts. How do I see the world? Or more how, do I live in a world of, of my scarcity or God's generosity? Do I live in a world of my scarcity 
or God's generosity. And Jesus' language in verses 22 and 23 of Matthew 6, is my eye healthy and taking in all of the light? Or is my eye bad or unhealthy and taking in mostly darkness? Our sermon outline this morning explains and explores this question, and we do it in two points. We're going to look first at why do we see our scarcity and how we act out of this perceived scarcity, how we act out uh, with stealing more than we need or hoarding what's ours. And then the second point, we're going to look at how do we act out of generosity. And that really comes from, that generosity comes from seeing God's generosity at work in this world. And so we're going to get below and behind this commandment about stealing, and we're going to talk about it in two points together, scarcity, then generosity. So let's begin with scarcity. That's our first point this morning. I noticed this week uh, that I actually felt more nervous preparing to talk about stealing and our possessions, our money, than I did preparing to talk about adultery and sex last week. Now, granted, I had seven days to prepare this versus less than two. I don't know if you remember that from last week. Uh, But I do think that talking about money, especially in the church, feels a little bit like talking about sex in the 1950s. It feels really uncomfortable, doesn't it? Like, think, think about it. Just think about how personal it would feel for me to ask you right here and right now, how much do you, how much is your income? How much do you make? Maybe you have to stand up and say it to everybody in the room. Or maybe I'll have you stand up and say to everyone in the room, how much money right now is in your bank account? Checking? Savings? Do you feel like that's enough? Do you feel like that's too much? Imagine how that feels. And the temptation for me as a speaker is to use euphemisms, like my finances, your finances. And the temptation for you as an audience member here is just to start squirming and get offended or at least defensive. All I have to do is just sort of ask what this command tells us, right? All, all we have to do is ask ourselves if we struggle to take what isn't ours. Do we struggle with that sometimes? Already, I can, I can feel myself squirming. Maybe you can too. But this topic of possessions and how we want them and what we want to do with them, why is it so difficult? Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21 give us a clue. It's because of, this is about what we treasure and who we treasure. And what we treasure and who we treasure is so very personal to us. Look at the way Jesus puts it in verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. What we treasure is what we most value or prize or prioritize. What we trust in, uh, what we treasure is what we trust in for future hope or present tense sort of peace. And it's what we care about deeply. It's what we delight in richly. And what we treasure can also make us really anxious, right? I can feel restless or afraid or depressed, especially if I'm treasuring something that I could possibly lose, right? Think about it this way. Like, I could lose that thing to an intruder, like moths or thieves, or I can lose that thing or even that person to time, 
uh, in case of things rot or rust or overuse. The Christian author Dallas Willard puts it well. Treasures are things we try to keep because of a value we put upon them. They may be of no value whatsoever in themselves. Nevertheless, we take great pains to protect such things. Thus, we are said to treasure them. And Willard gives examples that get us beyond sort of money or even sort of like physical possessions. He talks about things like reputation or relationships, time, health, abilities, or even sort of collective plural things like our school or our business or our nation, maybe even our church. Simply put, treasures are whatever we try to protect. Treasures are whatever we try to secure, whatever we try to keep. And before we talk about how this kind of heart instinct can lead us to bad places like stealing, it's worth pointing out that treasuring is actually something that's a dignity. It's given by God. It's given to, by God to people for our good. God designed us with a heart-level desire to treasure things. He built human beings to have possessions. And he built us to care for these valuables and to value other people. In the beginning, before even sin or evil entered the world, well before the Ten Commandments were laid down in stone in Exodus chapter 20, God told Adam to work and to keep the Garden of Eden. If, and even to work and keep some of the produce that he produces for himself. And this work was meant to produce fruit, right? It was meant to produce physical food, but also it was meant to produce emotional significance. And God told Adam to secure that fruit and enjoy it. But now life is different, this side of Eden, east of Eden, right? All of a sudden it's harder to get what we want, even when we work really, really hard for it. Food as well as significance feel like they're in short supply. And we know this from personal experience maybe, this is part of our story, or we see it every day. At almost every major intersection in Charlotte, we see this, right? Or wherever you get your news, you see images of scarcity. And so this drives us, this feeling or this reality for us drives us into a viewpoint of scarcity. It leads us to live like orphans, right? In a fit of self-protection, we're tempted to steal, even if we don't need to steal, to take extra, to take the only one left from others and for ourselves. And, and, for, and also to think for the future, to hoard, right? We're hoarding what I myself want. We want to stockpile extra. Um, you know, maybe it's bread rolls, or maybe it's more professional contacts, or more social options. Or when we're really pressed, it becomes things like toilet paper, or cases of Topo Chico mineral water, whatever gets you through the night, okay? <laughs> the point is, like, there is something going on here, and this is perhaps feels like a lot, but can you see that what our heart human level, or the cycle happens at a heart level for us? First, we perceive scarcity. Then we get afraid of not having or losing, not just our stuff, but our significance. So that's the scarcity cycle. We, get a, we perceive scarcity, and then we get afraid of not having or losing our stuff and our significance. 
And this is scarcity cycle that happens at a heart level that powers us to get to a place where we dare to steal. Again, even if we don't need to steal. Okay, and the temptation here, and that's kind of most of what I'm talking about, by the way, is I feel I'm assuming most of the audience here does not need to steal. And so the temptation here is to give you, as a preacher, to give you plenty of lists and examples of how you may or may not steal and not know it, uh, whether it's kind of big picture and it's institutional, like government oppression, businesses not paying taxes, schools not using tax dollars to educate children, or uh, predatory lending with impossible interest rates, or it's more personal, we can go there, anything from stealing office supplies or fudging on reimbursements or timesheets or stealing copyrighted material for entertainment. Uh, for instance, this is an amazing stat I came across this week. Did you know that The Passion of the Christ, that movie, was the most pirated movie in 2008? <laughs> Clearly stealing is, is actually a Christian issue, if that's the case. Do we get this? Okay. So, but this week, for me, it's just been helpful to apply this command with just a, a simple question. This has been the most effective for me to think through. What in my life feels the most earned and the hardest to give away? What in my life feels like it's the most earned, I did the most to get this, and therefore it feels like the hardest to give away? Is it a piece of my paycheck? Is it my free time? Is it a friendship I feel like I'm losing? Is it a feeling of being appreciated or respected? That question gets at the heart of the Eighth Commandment and also our sermon's second and final point. How do we act out of generosity? So we looked first at scarcity, and now we're going to look at generosity. You see, like all of the Ten Commandments, this commandment, the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal, is not just about preventing a negative behavior. Avoid bad behavior. Don't, that, don't be a thief. Don't thieve. Don't steal. <laughs> okay? It's also about a good behavior. It's about giving. Do this. Give. And give abundantly. Ephesians 4 gets to the heart of this. Ephesians 4, verse 28. Paul says it this way. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And so let's start to look at what, out of this verse, what it looks like to live as if God is actually that generous. First and foremost, if God were generous, we would give more radically. Giving as if God gave us everything, every single thing we possess, which is what the Bible says is true. So yes, we work, but we don't work for money. We work with money. We are stewards or servants, not owners. Or to use a metaphor more from Las Vegas and less from the Bible, you and I are only and always playing with house money. We're only and always playing with house money. What does that mean? <laughs> that means that the most important things we have, we didn't earn. The most important things that we have, we can't lose. It's house money. This is how Paul can say, for me, to live as Christ and to die as gain. He says that in Philippians. And some of you are kind of rolling your eyes and going, Sid, but Sid, preacher man. I have a family and a mortgage. <laughs> I have rent and grocery bills to do. I need to physically live. That's little comfort for me. 
And I wanna, I wanna affirm, there is responsibility to be had in this part of our lives. But I also wanna just keep pushing. Can we just keep pushing to be a little bit more free? What does freedom look like? Let me give you a quick example. Uh, it gets at how radical giving can be kind of at the big picture institutional level, but also the smaller picture, more personal level. In 2019, there was an article uh, that kind of highlighted two co-owners of a Memphis crane and rigging company. These two Christian co-owners ran their lives responsibly. Okay, they each made a decent salary and they ran their company well. The company was valued at well over $400 million. However, these two co-owners also decided to run their lives and run their company freely. They gave away 50% of their profits to an organization dedicated to relieve, all the organizations actually, multiple, that are dedicated to relieving poverty and suffering in Memphis. That came out, it still comes out to roughly, at the time of the article in 2019, it came out to $12 million a month they gave away. $12 million a month. And they each decided to live with and to raise their families with just over $100,000 a year. And again, that's a decent salary. And, but when they were asked about this, like, why are you giving away so much money? Why are you living on so little when you're co-owners? Here's what one of the co-owners had to say. He said it this way. We have found a great freedom in living a life with some financial restraints. Living our life saying, God, everything that we have is yours. And listen, it is so easy to take a great illustration and to make it a law. Okay, all of a sudden, some of you who are, want to run a business or are running a business are going, yes, Sid, right, so now I gotta give away 50% of my profits. Exactly. It's gotta, it's gotta be total roughly 400 million or 12 million a month. But I'm, I'm not telling you, that's, I don't think that's the takeaway. The takeaway is actually more of a question. And here's the question. How much does money control the way that we live? How much does money control the way that we live? Think about your future plans. How much of them are driven, how many of those plans are driven by money? Think about your career choices. How much of them is driven by money? And then I'd rather wanna ask, how much does the fear of not having enough money, not having enough stuff, control our lives? And so we're going deeper still I want to ask to, to more freely give, let's say it this way, to more freely give, we need to get behind the what we do and what we don't do. To more freely give, we gotta get behind the what we do and don't do, we gotta get to the why. Why do we do what we do? Why do we not do certain things? And the why here, why, do we, why in the world would we give in an unsafe world? Why in the world would we give abundantly? when it feels like we're surrounded by a lack of abundance. And this is actually because we believe, this Bible, the Bible is pushing us, these passages are pushing us to believe that God is actually generous. He's over and abundantly generous. And so if scarcity has a heart cycle for us, right? right? First, we perceive scarcity, and then we get afraid of not having or losing stuff or significance. I also want to say there's a cycle, heart cycle to generosity. First, we perceive God's generosity, 
that is beyond all measure. And then we give freely of what we have without expecting anything in return. So we perceive God's generosity, and then we give freely. That's the, that's the heart cycle of generosity. And this, this is, that is like we give what's precious to us, right? Our time, our money, our friendships, our professional reputations. And we give these without expecting anything in return. And we give and we live in such a way that we have to believe in a hope for the future, that God will do far more abundantly than anything we ask or think again and again and again and again. But how do you do that? How do we live like this? How do we lean forward and not fall down like this? Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave himself up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Or 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul again says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. I, I really, that, that can feel like me just dumping a couple Bible verses on you, and I get that. And so I really appreciate the way that Brian Habig, who's a preacher I admire, puts it in a slightly new way. At least it was new to me. He said it this way. Jesus didn't give 10% of himself. He didn't tithe himself. Jesus gave his whole self. And look, Jesus didn't look down from heaven and he didn't get really measured about how he gave. He didn't give expecting a return necessarily, right? He didn't practice what we would call effective altruism on the cross. He died for us when we were sorely against him. Jesus died to give me a forgiveness that I so often misuse and abuse and make excuses for behavior about. Jesus died to give me a life and give you a life littered with so many good things that we can all say, I know I have all I need. God will not forsake me. I do not have to live like an orphan. I have a father in heaven. And so I just wanna end where I started with this idea of um, this image of us living like orphans and what God does to address this, right? How does he meet us in this place? And what he's kind of been doing to me in the last few months as I've kind of seen this and then been trying to work through it personally. He brought to mind this illustration. Uh, Eugene Peterson is telling, tells a true story in one of his books about a couple that he knew once and the names were Fred and Cheryl. And Fred and Cheryl did what a lot of Christians will do, and they, they adopted a child from a foreign country. They adopted a, a girl named Addie, who was five years old, from Haiti. And so they went down to Haiti, and they flew her back across the, the, the Caribbean and into the United States, and they landed in, in Arizona, and they drove her back to their home in the suburbs in Arizona. And when Fred and Cheryl got home, they decided to introduce Addie, uh, who was tiny and malnourished, to their sort of two towering, still growing, giant teenage boys, okay? And they decided to do it over a home-cooked meal, like a dinner. And so Cheryl served up a platter of pork chops and a bowl of mashed potatoes, and Addie had just never even seen, her eyes grew wide, she had never seen so much food in one place at one time. And then, but then as the course of the meal went on, the, the boys started to eat and eat. And after wolfing down the first serving, 
the two teenage boys kept refilling their plates and refilling their plates with more sizzling pork chops and more steaming piles of mashed potatoes until suddenly all the food disappeared from the table. And Addie watched her two teenage brothers, her new two new teenage brothers with big eyes and became very, very quiet. And then a strange expression came on her face. And Fred and Cheryl both noticed that Addie wasn't doing well, that there was this growing alarm within her. And Cheryl guessed that it was about the disappearing food. That Addie had grown up in a place, in a situation, where if you didn't get the food then, you might not get food for another day or even a week. And so when the food was gone from the table, Addie thought it was gone for good. And so Cheryl did something really surprising and wonderful. She grabbed Addie by her thin, tiny hand, and then she sort of dragged her around the house. She led Addie into the kitchen and began to show her the three extra loaves of bread in the, in the, in the bread bin. And Cheryl opened the refrigerator door and showed Addie all of the jugs of orange juice and milk and the bags upon bags of vegetables and the packages of deli meat and bacon and eggs. And then Cheryl walked Addie to the pantry and then the freezer and showed Addie all the piles of meat and canned snacks, and, or canned beans and snacks and sauces. And the whole time, Cheryl pointed Addie to each of these food items and all over the house, these stacks upon stacks, what felt like Addie, more food than she's ever seen in her life. She couldn't even believe or imagine that people had this much food. And all the while, Cheryl was softly whispering in Addie's ear, no matter how much your teenage brothers eat, no matter how fast they eat it, there is so much more food where that dinner came from. And you, Addie, will never go hungry again. And you see, this is what God is doing. He's doing it in the Bible, but he's doing it in our lives everywhere. By the Holy Spirit, he's taking our hands, our tiny little hands, and he's showing us the fullness of who he is and what he gives us. The fullness of his love for us in Christ, breadth by breadth, length by length, depth by depth, height by height, all the while softly reassuring us that we never, ever have to go spiritually hungry again. That he's good. He's good for it. And this is the fact that the universe has changed my life in the last few months. My Father in heaven is way more generous than I can even imagine. And so I don't have to live like an orphan anymore. I don't have to take, I don't have to hoard, I don't have to self-protect. And yes, I am under contract of the house, and it's an amazing story I'd love to tell you at some point. But it's, it's and it's, and it feels beyond belief. And yes, I want to say this too. The gospel is more than just material blessings. I've been trying to make that point as well. But I also want to say that the gospel is not less than material blessings. It's not less than good gifts, things, and people, and even institutions. All for our good. All for our good. Would you pray with me? Father, Thank you uh, for these words to us. And as we transition to communion, I just pray that you would press them into our hearts. Would you take us by the hand? And would you lead us around this wonderful world?
And would you remind us that you're good for it, that you will take care of us, that you have taken care of us. And Lord, I know that's hard to believe, but I pray that you would help us to believe it in our hungry hearts. In your name, Jesus. Amen. So as we kind of transition to communion, I want to remind you that communion is a special time and a special place where God actually does what we just talked about. He takes us by our tiny hands and he flings open the pantry and the cupboard doors and swings wide the refrigerator drawers and the freezer shelves and he moves aside the ice trays and he shows us all of the goodness, all of the overabundance, the generosity without measure of his love his love for us in Jesus Christ. And really that's what communion is about, right? This is the love of God in Christ and the love that tells us I am the bread of life. Feed on my body, shown forth in this bread, and you will never, ever again have to be truly hungry. He says it again, he says it in, with, the, with, the, with the wine. He says, I am, this love is, I am the vine and you are the branches. Drink of me. Drink of me of this wine that shines forth, shows forth my blood. And you will never truly be thirsty again. Friends, that's what the Lord's table is. That's the message of the gospel. And the gospel is more than physical gifts for our physical needs. But it's also not less than that. It includes and wraps up, God gives good physical gifts his spiritual presence, his good promises are represented for us in these ordinary physical elements. Simple wine and grape juice, simple bread. And so I would encourage us to remember as we come to the table, this table belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ and not to Hope Community Church. Jesus is in charge of this meal, so he gets to invite whoever he wants to to the table, and he chooses to invite anyone and everyone who sees their need of him. And if you know you can't fix yourself, that you know you can't rescue yourself from yourself, from the many thoughts and feelings and actions, the sins that cling so near and so dear, if that's your story, come receive this meal. It's for you. And if that's not where you are, with yourself or with Jesus, we just want you to feel warmly welcome. We're so glad you're here with us this morning. And we love that you're at Hope exploring the gospel, exploring what Christianity is trying to say. Um, But we'd ask you not, uh, out of just respect for your own commitment and also respect for what the Bible says about this meal, that we'd ask you to refrain from taking it. And that can look like one of two things. You can stay seated when everyone comes forward, or if that feels really uncomfortable, you can come forward, and when you get to the wine or uh, to to the station where we serve the wine and the bread, you can just cross your arms, and we'll know not to serve you. And this leads me to a few kind of uh, ideas or suggestions about how we take communion. You're going to come down the aisle nearest you, towards the center, and then you're going to take both elements, and then you're going to bring them back to your seat, and we're going to take them all at the same time. Uh, there will be, uh, the inner cups are wine, and the outer two rings are grape juice, and the, there's gluten-free in a kind of communion set. You'll see it in the, the wine section of the tray. But allow me to say these few words of institution as we prepare to take the meal.
The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He gave thanks. And he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And on the same night, in a like manner, he took up the cup, and having given thanks, he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant that represents my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. I'm going to invite the people helping to serve come forward, and also the people helping to lead worship come forward. I'm going to pray for us in our time. Father, would we feast with you, and would it be delightful, and will we enjoy your good blessing? Uh, Father, thanks for this time uh, together, and would you help us to rejoice in your goodness and your generosity. In your name we pray. Amen.